0: Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at vJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick
1: Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral relevant across disciplines and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you wanna get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip.
0: We also wanted to mention that our second site, Graph.NerdJourney.com, is also live. That's the knowledge graph and linked notes version of our main page's show notes that we developed to make it easier to explore our episodes, guests, and topics. All right, everybody. Episode number 236, uh, part two of our discussion with Al Elliott. Just to give people a heads up, we did have a part one. That that was episode number 235. And just a quick review. I encourage you to go listen to it. It It's really fascinating. But just for some quick context, Al started... uh, One business had to shut it down due to changing economic conditions and laws. Um, He actually experienced bankruptcy as a result of that. And in going through that process, had another idea for a business. He had some uh, thoughts on entrepreneurship, uh, what it means to be one, and thoughts on leadership, what it means to be a leader. And it was, like I said, a, a fascinating conversation. If you haven't listened to it, go back. Episode number 235. What do we have to look forward with episode 236, the the second part?
1: Well, once you get an idea for a business after going through bankruptcy, how do you scale it? How do you make a wider impact, get more customers, make more money? Al's gonna tell us all about that and how he used that situation to build expertise in a new area, which was marketing.
0: Yeah, that, that was really cool. I think marketing, it kind of strikes me as important to all of us and all of our roles, regardless of what that role exactly is. But you know what, let me uh, hold off on uh, expounding on that until maybe the outro while the listeners uh, listen to Al actually talk about that. Al also mentioned some traits that made entrepreneurs successful, like his observations of those types of things. I don't know that it was a specific you know, talking point, but it was sprinkled uh, throughout, the discussion, and I found listening back, like, all of those observations are really fascinating. So let's go straight to episode 236, part two of our discussion with Al Elliott. So how did you scale the business because this is something where you started it but you also got to kind of go through a growth phase without massive changes and in in laws which undercut the business
2: well i will just start by saying that actually there was a law that undercut because the, the what we were doing was something called sell and rent back and that was the phrasing that was used and then that that became illegal to do unless you were like certified or something um about a year after we stopped doing it so it was again a little bit like oh you know the laws changed and also this was 2007 was we bought our last house and i think we all remember what happened in 2007 um you know the <laughs> lenders were no longer lenders <laughs> they were not lending money and uh, you wouldn't even lend you a pencil so we were lucky in that we i hate the word term lucky but we were lucky in that we started when we did 2005 and we finished when we did 2007 that bit's lucky. The rest of it is not luck. The rest of it is all about just being looking for a problem, solving it. Anyway, that wasn't the original question. The question was about scaling. Is that right, John? Yes. So I don't know what would be interesting to, to your listeners, but in order to scale this business, I didn't really have much in the way of marketing chops. I, I used to read a lot of um, Dan Kennedy. I used to read a lot of Dan Kennedy. And in fact, it was the first business book I ever bought was, was one of his books. Um, and so I learned a lot from, there, from him. But I think it was, in terms of scaling it, we kind of did two things. We First of all, we tried to get as many leads in as possible. Um, and we did that through something which in the UK is called an advertorial. I don't know if it's the same in, in the US, but yeah. So essentially it was, you go and buy space that would look like editorial. And I, I know you guys know what it is, but just in case someone's not come across the term. And so what I saw in the, in the local newspaper, which is, you can tell how long we're going back, 15 years, because people read the newspaper. And there were a lot of people who'd buy it and then just basically just fill it full of what looked like awful copy, where someone would go, oh, and so we, um, as the premier um, person in the US who helps with mortgages, then we do this and we do that and we do the other. And I'm like, that's not written the way that a newspaper article is written. So we did an editorial with the last I think we would bought one house at this point, and we had the last £1,500 that we had left, we bought an advertorial for. And we were like, okay, we have both gone and applied for jobs at this point, because we bought one house and it wasn't working. And so we did this advertorial, and I spent about three days reading through the newspaper and getting an idea of how how each article was written. And then I wrote an article as if it was written by the journalist. So the title was, Government Helps Homeowners Drowning in Debt. And instead of saying we were called the homeowner's advice center, terrible name, but it it worked and so instead of saying we are like oh we can help homeowners who are so-and-so so-and-so i wrote it exactly like a journalist would so i'd say you know the government has unveiled a new scheme which will help homeowners to blah blah blah, blah. um if homeowners are, are facing repossession then now they can get a 56-day extension by by getting an offer to do a sell and rent back we spoke to the owner of homeowner of homeowners advice center which is chris jenkins which was my business partner also better looking than me so that's why he went his picture went to the paper and he said, yeah, so what homeowners are doing now is so of And at the end, it just said, if you want, a, if you want to uh, um, learn more about this, then go and get your own sell and rent back pack at homeownersadvicecenter.com forward slash pack. That was incredible. That was the turning point. It went live on the Wednesday, and I woke up on the Thursday, and I had genuinely had about 40 to 50 people who downloaded the pack. And then we had this call center who was managing our calls, um, and they would booked us in about eight appointments. And we were like, this is amazing. And then as the people read it over, you know, the next few days got more and more appointments. And from that £1,500, I'm pretty sure we bought 10 houses and each house got an average about £30,000 worth of equity. So there's a good chance that £1,500 turned into £300,000 of equity at that time, which is more like half a million pound equity right now, just on that one article. And that was very much coming from the Dan Kennedy sort of native advertising idea was you don't advertise you advise you know rather than advertise so that was one of the mechanisms we used we also used Google Adwords which back in 2006 five six was beautiful you, you remember those days where you could get clicks for 5p 10p whatever a couple of little tweaks on there there was a guy called Perry Marshall which I'm sure you have come across um, and he was uh he's very big on Google Adwords um, and so I listened to everything I read his book five times I listened to everything he ever did and just got good at Google AdWords. I wasn't good at technically media buying. I was good at writing because I knew what to write because I'd been repossessed. So I knew what to write. So I could write the ads well. Um, there was things like there was a competitor who advertised on the radio. And so I said, okay, let's be a bit cheeky. So I ran some ads with their com- on their company name they were called Release, was the company. On the company name, the advert said, Release as heard on the radio and click here to get your pack. Now, they weren't advertising at Google, but what what they hadn't properly thought through is they're spending all this money on media on the radio. Someone's going to go to Google and Google their name. I'm the only advert because they're, they're not advertising. I'm the first one that comes up in the search results. They clicked on us. So we got loads of, loads of people from that. There was other things like, for example, we discovered that a large, a very large proportion of the people we we're talking to were long distance lorry drivers. I'm like, this is strange. It's not just 5%. It was like 25% of people spoke to are long distance lorry drivers.
1: And when we say lorry, that's a truck.
2: Yes. Yes. Sorry. I'm yes. I'm being very British. So truckers. And and I'm guessing it's a lot more long distance in the US than it is in the UK. Um, but yes, yeah, so we found that there was lots of these people who, who, were, who were truckers. And so we started advertising, buying napkins, getting napkins printed with our advert on it and go to truck stops and give them free napkins. And that brought in, like, we might have bought five or six houses from that one. But then there was also a lot of things that we did wrong that just didn't. I think we found a way that we could find the name and address of the person who's getting repossessed. And we started sending them letters, like, a week before they were getting repossessed, thinking this is a brilliant thing. because We go, look, you're getting repossessed. We can help you that did not that backfired people ring us up going how dare you i'm not getting repossessed even though we knew they were um or how did you get this information i'm going to the police you've you've got this from a different from a database public uh, public knowledge but they that backfired um so there was it was it was just we probably tried 30 different things the five that work well make great stories on podcasts like this the 25 who didn't do well and we lost loads of money well obviously i don't talk about them because i want to look like i'm really clever (laughs)
0: i'm also thinking about sending letters to people who are intentionally spending a lot of energy to avoid reading their mail
1: you'll read it for them
0: no no i mean if you're about to get repossessed the last thing you want to do is open up all the things that are coming in the mail
2: (laughs) that's a really good point and i hadn't thought of that
0: but i mean that's just my assumption so i it's probably worth what you guys tried which was testing it right you test a bunch of things and the things that you work you double down on and the things that don't you exactly you read all
2: these you read these books you hear these stories people go oh and all they did was you know the dropbox guy all he did was create this cool little video with lots of little easter eggs in it no i bet that's not all he did i bet he did a hundred things before that and 99 didn't work and the one we remember is the cool video with the easter eggs and that's what launched dropbox you know, he's, but he doesn't talk about the other 99 things because quite rightly, why would you?
0: I remember that there was a phase with really dynamic kind of cutesy ads where the backgrounds changed and there's costume changes live and people came in and there was like two or three that worked and then people started tuning that out. The old Spice guy, I think, is the the one that I remember. And there's like a couple, maybe like the there was like a shaving razor blade company and then after that immediately it was like "Ah, oh, one of these i'm not watching it again
2: <laughs> dollar shave club i think it was called is that the one you're thinking of yeah with the Harmon brothers Jay, yeah.
0: you have to, if you're one of the first two then i mean because i think dollar shave club guy probably sold and became a you know 100 millionaire but the fourth person who tried it didn't get anywhere
1: i think there's an interesting lesson there al and Maybe we didn't ask the question directly, but I think you answered it in what you gave just there, advice for the business owner or maybe our perception of people who are business owners and entrepreneurs. entrepreneurs. We don't take into consideration all the things they might have tried and failed. We only often see the things that they did to succeed. And in your case, of course you didn't let all the things that you tried and didn't work keep you from continuing to try.
2: Yeah, I think, I think there's there's very much if we're not careful, we, we look at the iPhone, what are we on now 16 or something and we go, I want to create a new iPhone. I'm never going to make it as good as this. We forget about the iPhone one, about the I don't even, never even saw the iPhone one. We forget about the iPhone 3, I think was the first one I had looking back it was rubbish compared to what it is today but we forget the iteration of getting there and i think it's the same with every kind of business there's that whole like you know the inside joke is the 10 year overnight success story if we start comparing ourselves to people who are in their fifth year of business and we're like, oh, we're never going to make our UX as cool as this. We're never going to make our our adverts are never going to work as well as this. Or oh, we should probably be doing a newsletter because your man over here is doing a newsletter and making fifteen grand a year, a fifteen million a year, and just sold it for X, Y, Z. No, hang on. This isn't the first time that, that, you know, you're looking at the end result. You're not looking at all the things that did wrong. You're not looking at the journey that got them there and you're starting from scratch. And I don't know whether this is necessarily the route we want to go down with this conversation, but you have to do a lot of things wrong to get one thing right, unless you're super lucky. And if you're lucky, well, that's, I think that's really bad because if you're lucky, you win the lottery. What's the stats that the majority of people go bankrupt within five years because, they didn't feel they earned it. And I think that, you know, without going into the whole idea of like, you know, wealth thermostats and what you think you're worth and all that, if you have a lucky break and you do well, you either think everything I touch is going to is, is going to work because I'm a genius or you look and go, I'm never going to take a risk again because that was the one time that worked for me. So I think people who are lucky are unlucky, in my opinion.
0: It is true that I've heard stories about lottery winners who keep on playing the lottery. And I think to myself, Oops. <laughs> that that's probably not not the lesson to learn
2: <laughs> No, if you know if you know anything about statistics and maths and probability then you probably would would not you'd not buy any more tickets would you
0: i think this might be an unfortunate time to re-mention that nick was also a math teacher
2: i
1: was i was a high school math teacher for three and a half years loved it really and you did love it oh i loved it the teacher in me never went away i mean when i get to explain something to someone, it, it's really fun. Assuming I know what I'm talking about. If I don't, well, that's, it's like torture. I need to go learn it. I need to learn it better.
0: You have to have the passion for the subject and the passion for teaching, right? And, and it has to be applied. It struck me a little bit later on in the story when you were talking about helping people to understand their options when they're facing repossession of their house, that that was probably a process of teaching while you're selling, right? Um, i don 't know any if if any of those skills came back, but it was obviously something that you had personal experience with. you had the skills and you had the passion to go in and, and teach somebody about it so yeah that 's probably what it takes to to be a teacher on any given subject. Do you
2: know what 's funny is, and I want to ask you in a second, Nick why it was only three and a half years but do you know what's funny is that the actual teaching side of it, get it standing up in front of kids or talking to kids. I was at math tutor as well at some point to make some money when I was a bit skint. Um, and I really enjoyed that. I loved taking someone going, I don't understand ratios to getting a load of currants or raisins out on the desk and going, okay, so that two here and six here is the same as four here and 12 here and going, look, it is because take you know, that kind of thing. I liked that. What I didn't like was lesson planning. What I didn't like was all the bureaucracy. What I didn't like was, you know, that, that I was around people who were quite negative, the other teachers. I didn't like the kids were just a pain in the backside. Um, so it was, I think the actual teaching side, I quite enjoy. And really, I'd never thought of this, John, but you're quite right. That's what I was doing when I was doing the finance side and helping people to get out of debt. I was teaching people both by writing blog posts, sending emails, all that kind of stuff was teaching people. This is, there is a different way. It's easy. You can do this. You can do that. But yeah, it wasn't the the actual environment for me. wasn't, wasn't right. But why was it only three and a half years? Um,
1: Nick. So I, my kryptonite is that I care too much about whatever I'm doing that I am enjoying. Just ask John how much of a crazy person I am about the podcast. And we wanted to have kids. And so I kind of thought that I wouldn't be able to be as dedicated as I wanted to to the teaching and still be a good dad. And I didn't really want to compromise on either one. So it's like, well, maybe it's best to leave this behind and seek out something else so that, you know, my wife can stay home with our child and not have to work. It's a good lesson to learn
0: is is to really try to find something that you're not as passionate about.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Walk away from something you love for something you love more.
2: They do say that, that there is an argument about, you know, some people say follow your passion. And there's an argument about that. If you love making cupcakes and you spend all weekend making these most beautiful cupcakes, then the second that you have to make them every single day and you have to make 500 a day, you turn your passion into a nightmare and you just ruin it. So it's far better off to stay as a... As a hobby and not fully passion, I don't know where I stand on that. I mean, I'm interested in what you what you guys think, but I don't know. Can you ruin your passion by turning it into work? I think you can. It depends on the
0: business, right? Because I think what it is that you're saying, like, is being around the thing going to ruin the thing? There's like a fairly famous. It's an older advertisement that people might not remember, and it's just this guy who gets up I and mean, he says, "Making the donuts." making the, and it's kind of this droning, making the dough. And he's, it's like this grinding job that he has of making donuts. You might love eating donuts, but you might not want to, you know, get up at 2am to make donuts every day for the rest of your life. And I think what you said about scaling the thing can be a grind if it's, you know, massively low margin <laughs> or, or maybe a, a low total sale like uh, a cupcake is, you know, how many thousand dollar cupcake orders do you get, you know, a month? What does it take to, to rent a place to make cupcakes in? It can turn into a grind, but it doesn't have to be. It just depends on the business, I'm sure. And it depends on the person. I've seen people be super passionate about baking and, and loving the skills and they love being solo late at night. And, you know, they have, you know, most of the day to themselves, you know, after, afterwards. That's not quite the same thing as cupcakes, but when you're a baker and it's 7 a.m., you might be done with production baking, right? It just depends. It's it's interesting that you have uh, experienced this, though, right? Because you are in a place where you've kind of turned some things that you're passionate about into businesses. So, you know, maybe I'll throw that question back at you.
2: Has Has that happened to you? The question is, have I have I ever pursued a passion and turned it into a business successfully? And then found that it was too much of a
0: grind to really enjoy. Because you've mentioned kind of the marketing things, and you've been fairly joyous about it. The, ooh, I found this thing and it worked. And, you know, I'm sure that there's this, like, you know, hit in your brain when you realize, ooh, this was really good. And then you started a marketing business right after you got out of um, the property thing so i'm just wondering did it become a grind
2: interesting that's such a great question yes to a certain extent like the tactics became a grind i, I used to do wordpress websites I used to build those and i shut down the, the company about two years ago because you can go and buy themes that are as good as bespoke wordpress um, stuff that i used to build so that became a massive massive drain on my energy because I hated it because I love making websites and I love sitting down on a a, a Saturday afternoon and going, right, I'm going to go and create this new website and I'm going to go and build it and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I love that. But then when someone, you've got a client who says, I don't like what you've done there. I don't like what you've done there. You want to change that, 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 that. It just feels like it's just disheartening because you're like, this is brilliant. And I remember one website I built for this lady and I was like, this is possibly the best thing I've ever made. And then the changes she told, she, she gave me to make to them every day. I made these changes and I was like, this is horrible. This is horrible to the point where my friend said, Oh, um, I heard you did the website for her. This, this mutual, this woman who was a mutual friend, I did the website for her. And I went, Oh no, I just set up web WordPress for her. She basically did the rest of it. I wouldn't admit that that monstrosity was something I'd built because it was horrendous. So I think when you're talking about the marketing, what, What spurs me on is, interestingly, a psychology of people and human behavior, which is obviously what Leanne, my wife, is all about. And there's so much overlap now we're realizing between marketing and workplace culture and recruitment and engagement and stuff. It's basically the same path with customers, but just instead of customers, you've got employees and you just find out what they want and give it to them. And then how do I, how do I scale up? How do I recruit? How do I keep customers for for longer? How do I, what you know, engagement, it's all the same thing. It's all about human psychology. And what I used to love and I still will love is the idea of finding, writing a hundred ads and finding the one that outperforms the rest of them by 12 to 1, by 100 to 1. That's cool. What I think would be bad or for me is if my job was to write 100 ads and then pass them over to someone and not and not see what happened. So for me the joy I get out of out of the marketing is using human psychology and that kind of stuff to to find something that that resonates and really goes. It's not the sitting down and writing 100 ads. So I think there's maybe a slight difference between almost like the strategy and the tactics kind of thing in that tactically you have to sit down and write all these things or do all these things. No, everyone has a part of their job they don't really like. But if you still wake up at three o'clock in the morning and go, oh, I've got a great idea for so-and-so, it might be more high level than just writing web copy, but that's what keeps you going, I think. I'm not sure I've answered that question for you.
1: I think you did answer the question because what I heard was, I like to see the impact of what I have done and that's important to me, otherwise it doesn't have the meaning in doing the work anymore. It's not as exciting. It's sort of like the I donated blood this morning, for example. A lot of times you get a thank you. Hey, this this helped save ten lives or something like that. Or we gave that to ten people. A lot of folks need that impact understanding. So that they don't feel like they're doing it for no reason. and and maybe that's a bad example about the blood donation because it's not really work. it's a it's a volunteer thing. But it does speak to the f- the feedback,
0: Nick, I think, is what you've you're hitting on, right? Which is the my passion isn't grinding out a hundred ads. My passion is testing the hundred ads that I've ground out to see which ones are hitting. And trying to deconstruct why and then doing more variations on that, maybe building some rules, you know, to try to broaden my understanding of what works in ads and what doesn't and how that changes over time. Maybe, oh, this has kind of stopped working. Why is that? Those kinds of things, as opposed to doing something for pay and then having somebody make a bunch of changes for it and not feeling any ownership. My question to you is if you had been able to go live with that ad and then, talk the client into A-B testing each of the changes that they wanted to see which one got better engagement, would that have scratched the itch for you?
2: Yeah, probably would. I have no problem with being wrong. I just want the market to tell me I'm wrong. I don't want someone sitting at home going, I've paid you to do something and that's wrong. So I think that that's a really good point that, yeah, had the impact of that been objectively measured... And A, B tested, and we discovered that actually her idea outperformed mine, I would have gone, fair, fair enough. I mean, we all know that, you know, the more simple a landing page is, the more likely it's going to convert. And most of the landing pages, particularly, you know, Frank Kern, for example, and we come across his work, but his stuff is, it looks visually horrible, but it converts like anything. Whereas you've got lots of people who are amazing designers and will spend twenty hours on creating this beautiful landing page that's got dark mode, light mode, that's just beautiful, that's got animations, and you're getting a four percent, you know, conversion. Frank Kern sticks up literally an awful video of him, a headline underneath. It's plain HTML, a box. He gets, a, you know, sixty percent conversion. So I think it's for me, it's interesting. It's the impact, and that actually on a more, on a broader sense, something you just said there, both of you on a broader sense is that not the whole point of anything like work you need to know what your reason is if if you're if you're building something and you don't know why you're doing something it just becomes a job whereas if you have a reason for why this has to go out the door because someone has shown you what impact your small bit you're doing here security whatever it is you're doing database what impact that's going to have on the greater good of the company, immediately you're like, okay, I've no longer, I've not got a job. I've got this amazing like experience. I'm, you know, and a great leader will do that. A great leader will will show you what the impact of what you're doing today will have on, you know, where we're all going. And I think that that surely, if we all have reason in our work and we are shown what where a reason in our work, whether we are, you know, picking up cow manure or we're coding out the nicest, you know, the best UI for Dropbox or something. If we all know what the reason is and how it fits into the bigger thing, I think that's enough for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, we need to know what our, that, that there's purpose. That's one of the Three Signs of a Miserable Job by Patrick Lincioni. I don't know if you read that one. It's a great book, but The one of them is not knowing that your work has a purpose. But here's the here's like the meta lesson in everything we just talked about that brought it full circle for me. The impact that you enjoy, Al, and then the iteration on it to make it better that John talked about. Really, that's just another form of removing the blockers. If you think about it, you like to remove the blockers so that you can keep going.
0: Having the vision,
2: charting the path, removing the blockers.
1: There's your episode title right there.
2: I love it, and just making just making people's lives better. Surely, surely, there's no greater calling or or purpose on earth than knowing that you've improved someone's life, and whether that is like you said, then Nick, giving blood. You went, "Oh, it's not a very good example." I think it's an excellent example because you have been you've altruistically affected someone else's life with no visible, you know, ROI on that, apart from possibly a biscuit and a smile, um, but. You know, you had this impact on people's lives and I don't think that's all airy, fairy, feely, like hippie nonsense. I think we all want to impact other people's lives, but we just sometimes we don't know how to even start.
0: I think we have to stop there, guys. Yeah, are we gonna get better than
1: that? I think we just won the lottery with that.
0: I'm just really curious about whether Leanne is going to disagree with almost everything that you said here.
2: But maybe we should uh, find out when we talk to her definitely and and i hope she does i hope she disagrees with a lot of it because i'd be interested to hear what where it is that she disagrees and, and that's a learning moment isn't it
0: Nick, I just really enjoyed our conversation with Al. Let's maybe start at the top of the episode. We started talking about scaling a business. And Al's business happened to be involved with direct-to-consumer marketing. But it just reminded me that we're always responsible for marketing our product, right? Especially if our product is ourselves, our labor, and our skills. And... We might be marketing that to a wide variety of potential employers out there. We might be marketing that within the organization to try to get people to understand what it is that we can do to help them or how to better collaborate with us. It's just any number of things. And, you know, so some of the tactics that Al came out with probably very focused on direct to consumer, but it just doesn't relieve us of the responsibility for marketing Inside our organizations, you know, with our jobs or or to potential employers, if, if that's, you know, something that you're in the process of doing, you know, maybe changing jobs
1: or even just potentially changing jobs. Yeah, just feeling it out. Marketing the problem we solve, in the words of Don Jones. But I also think that the teaching or the teaching discussion we had with Al plays into this because one of the ways you can market what you do is through educating others. So if I'm educating people through, I don't know, a podcast that I run with some guy named John White, then I'm marketing education skills in a way, right? Because we're educating people. Or maybe I'm doing that through the written word and blogs or by giving presentations. Think of all those things. Those educational opportunities are also marketing opportunities. Absolutely. Or one way to market is to educate. How about that? That's a better way to say
0: it. Yeah, I, I like that. The um, other thing that popped into my mind, especially because Al was specifically talking about scaling, was how do we scale our products when our products are ourselves, um, our labor, and our skills, right? That's a harder discussion to have. It just reminded me that I've been trying to do a lot of documenting about my processes. And it actually reminded me of another situation that i had at a previous job where somebody had had a successful marketing campaign and i guess they were so successful and famous within the organization for this that they actually had recorded a video talking about it and had written some documentation about it so they said hey i'm really happy to talk to you about this but maybe if you could do me a favor and watch this video and read this document first because, you know, maybe the questions that you have are answered there. And if they're they're not, then again, I'm happy to have that conversation. It just struck me that, oh, one way to scale our own efforts is to do really good documentation of what's worked for us and then put it out there for other people to look into. And then, you know, now your, your skills are helping other people and they can just send you a thank you email instead of, uh, you know, you trying to scale yourself like on a one-by-one basis, which can be really tough.
1: Yeah. Well, that's the stuff that deep work is made of, John, because if you recall in episode 147, that was our part seven of a projected two-part series on deep work by Cal Newport, where he's talking about becoming hard to reach as a way to skill yourself, your skills. So that's what I thought of. You're becoming hard to reach, but not in a narcissistic, I don't want to talk to people way, just a, let me be a little bit more helpful so I can reach more people. And as you said, if it's a different question than I've already answered, let's talk.
0: Yeah. Especially since that can be yet another thing that goes into documentation that you write. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you've come up with an interesting new question for me to answer. That's more documentation that I can write to reach other
1: people. Exactly. And you were talking about Documenting your processes. And speaking of processes, it just reminds me of something that Brendan Burchard recently talked about on one of his Daily Fires and Growth Day. He was talking about how if we are able to own a process from end to end, that makes us much more engaged in the work that we're doing. It's that sense of ownership, seeing the impact that we are making by doing the work. And I that really in my mind underscores a lot of the discussion we had with al in his desire and need to be able to make an impact cuz he owned the process of writing the ads and seeing their impact if he he said if he didn't if he couldn't see what happened that it just it wouldn't seem worth the work in some ways right it's
0: like shouting into the wind mm-hmm. you don't know if anybody's hearing right That makes sense. So having that impact as kind of a core reason for being involved in the process at all was kind of one of the things that he called out as just, you know, super, super important to him. One of the reasons why, you know, he was just continually motivated as an entrepreneur.
1: I think this is a callback to what we discussed in episode 235 with Al, the part one of the discussion where he's talking about entrepreneurs and many of them just want to be right. They don't necessarily want to solve the problem. They they want to be right. I liked what he said about he's okay with being wrong as long as someone proves him wrong with market data. It's okay for you to tell me I have a bad idea, but let's let's go field test that and make sure it's not just your opinion. Let's make sure that we get a large sample size for that verdict. Let's just say right. And I think it kind of
0: harkens back to the previous thing that we just talked about is actually having that impact. It's like if your core desires to have like a positive impact, then your process or your thesis being wrong is actually a helpful thing, right? You want to know early on that you're not going to have that impact. So just saying like, hey, let's do the thing, the idea that I came up with, like that becomes less important, you know, especially if that thing is not going to lead to the impact, which is the ultimate desire.
1: And that's where iteration comes in. All the things he was talking about with entrepreneurs who were very successful, Steve Jobs and the iPhone, how many iterations of that have we been through? And we can't compare ourselves as people just starting out in a specific area to someone who's been through or a company that's been through 15, 16 generations of a product. It's just not a fair comparison.
0: Exactly. The the one thing that we can hold ourselves to is to commit to that process, though, right, of continually refining and iterating, improving processes, improving ourselves, improving skills, just committing to doing better later on.
1: Sort of like process over outcomes, episode 19. Kind of like that.
0: Yeah. Oh, it seems okay. to be one of
1: the things that we we always
0: circle back to. Maybe that's just because that's a the thing that I'm passionate about.
2: <laughs> yeah. And
1: you're very good at it for sure good at modeling that for other people, myself included. Before we leave, let's just make sure and tell everybody, be sure and subscribe to the Truth, Lies, and Workplace Culture podcast, which features Al and his wife, Leanne, who I think we're going to talk to next week.
0: Yeah. A little spoiler. Um, we weren't able to schedule Al and Leanne at the exact same time, but we were able to talk to them separately. So, really excited to get Leanne's take and, and like I said you know I'm I'm just wondering if Leanne's going to come and undercut everything that Al gave us but you'll have to stay, stay tuned and, and listen next week to find out.
1: Just a reminder we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at NerdJourney.
0: Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at B Journeyman, for Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore, signing off.
1: Adios.
2: But um, I hope you'll give me a a rebuttal to that, though. I'll have to, I'll have to just, we'll be, the rest of your podcast could just be forever, just me and Leanne arguing about uh, putting our point forward.
1: <laughs> there you go. I'm going to cut it right there.